0: This is The Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday, 10 to 2, on 980 CKNW and through the
1: Radio Player app. If you could go see Elvis Presley in concert, but it was a hologram, but a really good hologram, would you pay to go see that? If you could see Prince, maybe you never got the chance, but now you could go see Prince in concert, just amazing, good hologram, you can hardly tell it's a hologram, would you go pay to see that? Well, this is the question. The Whitney Houston Hologram Tour is hitting the road in January of next year. They've got all these days to book. They're going to 14 different countries. They're kicking off January 23rd in Mexico. For our hot question of the day today, we are asking you, would you pay to go to a concert with a famous musician or a band that is a hologram? Do you go, yeah, you know if the price is, right? Maybe if it's 20 bucks, 30 bucks a ticket, 40 bucks a ticket, yeah, would you go? Or do you think, no, it's not the real thing. That's just weird. That's also my answer. I was just be like, no, I'm not going to that. I don't think so. Uh, well, me Sarah 980 or at CKNW. Curious because they're testing the markets with this Whitney Houston thing. This is a real thing. We're not even making this up. So go online and cast your vote. Simi Sarah 980 at CKNW. You can also email me, simi at cknw.com uh, or also call our buzz line 604-331-2899. And here's a, another question to add to it. Who would you pay to see on a hologram tour? If not Whitney Houston, the Beatles? Would you go to pay to see the Beatles? Look like at the complete version of a hologram. Is there anybody you'd pay money to go and see? Well, let's talk about week one on the election campaign. We still have quite a few weeks to go, but we're coming into shape in terms of what the messages are, what the political parties are trying to get to us. And one of the big folk, uh, the big focus, I should say, this week has been affordability. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh promising to extend full public dental coverage to people who earn less than $70,000 a year. Meanwhile, Liberal leader Justin Trudeau says a second term Liberal government would increase old age security by an extra 10% once seniors reach the age of 75. Uh, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer says his party would save $1.5 billion a year by eliminating federal programs where the money benefits corporations rather than protecting jobs. So lots of promises out there, but let's see who has really resonated with people. Good. What's the impression out there? Keith Baldry joins us now, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Good morning, Keith.
2: Morning, Timmy. Well,
1: all right, one week in the books. Who do you think, let's start with who you think had a good week.
3: I think the person had the best week was Jagmeet Singh of the NDP because, first of all, expectations are quite low for him. A lot of people didn't know who he was, but I think he's come across as a pretty good campaigner. Uh, I think Andrew Scheer has, has had a good week, if not an awkward week, because I don't think he's a great campaigner. But he's certainly talking about pocketbook issues. Uh and I think that resonates with voters when he talks about uh, putting more money back in your hands. I think Elizabeth May of the Greens has had a rocky week, a rocky start. I think it's almost been a disaster for her, uh, losing candidates, having to ex- explain why some candidates want to reopen the abortion debate, and others are 9-11 truthers and all sorts of problems with her. And I tweeted last night, I thought, uh, Justin Trudeau is playing it safe, way too safe. Yeah. He's not being very bold. He's, he's running a front runner campaign when he's not really a front runner. I mean, the polls are showing he's locked in a dead heat with Andrew Shear. And I just think he's been a bit lackluster uh, compared to the others. And I think, uh, I think that's probably going to change. I think I actually got a, a message from his campaign bus when they saw my tweet last night saying he's playing it way too safe. Uh, their defense was it's been a clean uh, start, but now it's going to become much more intensive. And I think you're going to start seeing Trudeau pick up the pace.
1: That's interesting. So they clearly, that that, that means something to them to say they're playing it safe because you're right. Nobody's winning, it seems like right now.
3: No, and our pollster, our pollster, Daryl Bricker, is making the point that uh, this campaign hasn't resonated with the voters. Uh, this is very much a campaign that's underway because it's on the calendar it's not like anybody was really demanding an election or, or wanting an election and so i think it's been slow for the voters to really uh, engage with this campaign which is why i think it's been lackluster because i don't think you've got the public engaged with this i've always thought election campaigns really begin with the first televised leaders debate yeah. in terms of, of the big reach we've, we've had one but it was a small debate trudeau wasn't there so october <clears throat> october 7th on on global Uh, will be the full leaders debate. And I think that's when people are going to sit up and take notice. And that's when the campaign really begins in a lot of people's minds.
1: Right. You mentioned Elizabeth May there in the rough week that she had. And it seems to me that it's almost led to like more scrutiny now Mm -hmm. of her party. Whereas I I think leading into this, they thought they were going to be talking about all these issues. But now people are really kind of questioning them more.
3: Well, exactly. Because they put the expectation bar so high this time. They're talking about capturing all sorts of seats, particularly in B.C. and on Vancouver Island. So uh, in the past, they've been given a free ride. And the other thing, the other dynamic that's fascinating to watch in this campaign is the NDP is now taking on the Greens in a way that hasn't happened before. Before, they had this polite uh, sort of uh, relationship where they never really called each other out. Now you've got Jugmeet Singh and Elizabeth May. Uh, dueling uh, publicly. On Twitter, you've got NDP, MLAs, and MPs going after the Greens and vice versa in a way you never saw before, because the the NDP, I think, sees the Greens as a bit of a threat. And that's why they're getting more scrutiny and why they're being called out on some of their promises. Elizabeth May's launch, where her campaign platform is, she hasn't put a price tag on it, but it's got to be billions of dollars. I mean, free tuition, all sorts of of other things in that platform that go well beyond just fighting climate change so they're being held to a higher level of accountability than they have in the past and i think that's why you're seeing a bit of a slump in the polls for the greens i think they hit their high watermark and I think it's going to be a struggle for me to, to achieve the, the sort of lofty levels her party was at at the height of the SNC-Lavalin yeah. controversy.
1: You're so right, because even today is a good example of that, is that you had the NDP and Jigmeet Singh promising full public dental coverage to people who earn less than $70,000 a year, and then the Greens jumped in right after that with Elizabeth May yeah. saying, oh, that's too expensive, we just give it to people who really need it, but not putting a figure on that.
3: Yes and and we're waiting for the parliamentary budget office to come in with some price tags on on the green platform interesting Justin Trudeau will not submit all of his Campaign promises to the budget office for cost estimation, just just the big ticket items uh, uh, is where he's going with that. But the Greens, uh, you know, they're again under more scrutiny than they have in the past. And I have to wonder whether their lofty, ambitious goals of winning yeah. six, seven seats on Vancouver Island may not come to fruition because I think more people look at a political party. Uh, the the more criticism they come under
1: right, and you pointed out though they set that bar themselves right they, did. they, they, they sit they talk that up before the election
3: they are they they they're the ones who have set the bar rather than just talking about you know winning a seat or two and trying to get a few more seats they they sort of uh, grandiosely i think set the level fairly high, much right. higher than they have in previous campaigns.
1: All right, let's talk about Andrew Shear here, because really, if anybody has or should have a lot of momentum, it's the leader of the opposition, who was the leader of the opposition during everything that happened this year. Why isn't he more out front?
3: Well, that's a, I, I just don't think Andrew Shear's is a natural campaigner. Uh, I don't think he's a natural um, leader in terms of a, 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 a politician who's out there in the hustings really sort of banging the drum You uh, know way that, you know, Justin Trudeau's is a natural campaigner. I think Jagmeet Singh's established himself as a natural campaigner. I just don't think Andrew Shear comes across that way on the Hussings as this, uh, you know, warm, uh, outgoing personality. But it's interesting, though, to me, one thing about the Conservatives, they are resilient in mm-hmm. terms of their vote. They True. Their vote doesn't disappear, and it doesn't necessarily increase, but they hang on to their base very effectively, and I think Sheer is going to do that very effectively. Yeah, and he's not going to lose voters from from 2015. And the key to his victory, if it if it actually happens, is him his candidates winning ridings all across the country. Uh, in some cases, with only 37 percent of the vote, because the other parties will split the so called progressive side of okay. the of the of the spectrum, and that's that's the key to his success.
1: That's a good point, then. Do you think, then, out of all the parties, are conservative voters, like dedica- already decided voters, the most dedicated out of that group? I
3: would say history suggests that's the case, that uh, they've been able to hang on to the vote. I mean, Trudeau won in 2015, not because the, the Conservatives collapsed. He won because he brought in millions of new voters, and that's what put him over the top. And so many writings in British Columbia, where the Conservatives held on to these writings for years in the Fraser Valley, uh, and the Liberals had no no sign of strength for, for more than a decade in some of these places. And suddenly they win these ridings because Trudeau brought in a whole attracted a whole bunch of new voters. Uh, he won. The Liberals won. I did the tally the other day. They won seven seats from the Conservatives because Trudeau increased the Liberal vote by one hundred thirty thousand votes in those in those ridings. People who just never had voted before or had voted for other parties, but the Conservatives didn't really lose a lot. I mean, the right. Conservative vote didn't go down. It was the Liberals went up. And unless Trudeau can make sure that uh, that doesn't that it holds for him in this campaign. Sheer can be in quite good uh, territory if he mm-hmm. can just hang on to his vote and hope the Liberals go down
1: and split with the other parties. So what are you looking for then in the next week? Like, give some advice to each of our parties here.
3: Well, I think uh, Jagmeet Singh's got to keep doing what he's doing, which is uh, sort of campaigning in a free and easy way. I mean, I love the fact that his campaign bus did an unscheduled stop at a, at a Butter Tart Festival, you know, and took <laughs> right. all the reporters there. Uh, so it's that sort of free and easy thing. I think he has to keep doing that. I think Sheer has to keep talking about pocketbook issues, putting money back in your wallet and getting it out of the government's hands. I think Trudeau has to step up the pace. He's got to start taking report uh, questions from reporters. He went two days without uh, without taking uh, yeah. questions, which was a page out of Stephen Harper's playbook, which the Liberals decried right. rightly, rightly so. So I think he's got to be more open. He's got to be more active. And Elizabeth May, I just think she's got to dial it back a bit and concentrate on the few seats that she can actually have a chance of winning, which is basically on Vancouver Island. She's in Guelph, which is another riding that where the Greens have a real shot at winning. Uh, but I think she's got to get herself back to uh, British Columbia and campaign in a, in a province where she actually has a shot at getting some seats.
1: All right, we'll be checking in with you, Keith. Thank you. I expect it. Okay, take care. That's Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief, talking about week one on the federal election campaign the winners, the losers. By now, we know that Surrey is well on its way to transitioning away from the RCMP into its own police force, right? That that is that whole thing is underway. For many residents there, they feel this has been a long time coming. And remember, Surrey has the largest RCMP detachment in the country. Now, if that's disbanded and doesn't exist anymore, how would that affect all of the other smaller RCMP divisions around the province? Some of the communities with those RCMP detachments are now expressing concerns. Like, are their costs going to go up? Are they going to have trouble now uh, getting more officers to come to their communities? Well, Al Sebring is the mayor of North Cowichan, and he's the person who's raised a lot of these questions. He joined us earlier to talk more about this. Well, Mayor Sebring, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. You have some concerns about Surrey's potential transition away from the RCMP. Why is that?
2: Well, you know, i got to start by saying Mayor McCallum certainly entitled to do this. and We're not trying to stop it, but I'm saying there has to be a fulsome examination of uh, the effects of this on other communities around B.C. RCMP is a shared service. Uh, on a whole bunch of levels. For example, we had the fires last year in, you know, 100 mile and Williams Lake and every detachment in the province had some of their members seconded to go up there. When we lose the largest detachment in the province, what does that do to the rest of us in terms of the level of protection we're left with? Uh, another issue is, for example, Green Timbers. I mean, that facility's been open for what seven or eight years now, we still haven't figured out how it's going to be paid for. We still haven't done the full allocation. Uh, it 's a billion dollar facility, so no matter what the allocation is it 's going to be substantial for municipalities. if surrey is going to leave that 's fine, but there has to be some recognition in that departure agreement that says Surrey has benefited for the last seven or eight years from the existence of this uh, facility, and you know there 's got to be a bill for that. But those are the kinds of things that that we need to look at. never mind you know other stuff like uh, uh, vacancies and recruitment issues and re- and retirements and uh, outstanding pay and training. I mean, you know, if I bring on a couple of new officers in my North Cowichan detachment, I don't pay 100% for that training. That is shared from around the province. Right. Now, granted, you know, Surrey is the largest detachment, so the cost will come down. But will the reduction in costs on one level uh, make up for what are going to be increases in costs at other levels?
1: Have there been any concerns expressed to you from the local RCMP detachment there or from people in charge?
2: Not really. This this came about... There's a committee for UBCM that administers the, the RCMP policing contract. It's called the Local Government Contract Management Committee. And I sit on that committee, so I'm more aware than most uh, municipal officials of how this contract works. So I drew it to the attention of that committee, uh, its co-chairs, as well as to the attention of, of Wally Opal, who's been tasked by the province with, with looking at this whole transition. And uh, the LGCMC has also sent a letter to the Attorney General Minister of Public Safety expressing some of these same concerns. I cc'd the letter to, I don't know a little more than a dozen communities around the province. You have to understand that, that RCMP services here, if you, if you have a community of over 15,000 in terms of population, you're paying 90% of the RCMP bill for mm-hmm. your community. Those are the ones that would be hardest hit. And, you know, that letter is starting to hit council tables now. I mean, I sent it three weeks ago, but now it's starting to get some media attention because yeah. it's, it's yeah, starting it's to pop up in all these agendas.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, any concern? Are you worried then about the potential cost to, say, your taxpayers and your community? Do you think they're going to have to pay more
2: that's what we need to find out i don't know Uh, and 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 that's the problem we don't know what we don't know and we all i'm saying is we need a fulsome examination of this stuff to make sure that uh the the smaller communities the ones over fifteen thousand, which are you know considerably smaller than surrey in the overall scheme of things that they don't end up with a disproportionately large bill because of the decision by by surrey council to go it alone
1: are you worried about losing officers in your community
2: no, it's not so much that. I mean, uh, you know, we've, we we fight hard to get the ones we we have, and I don't think we'd uh, we'd give them up. And I don't think anybody could force them to or force us to give them up. it's it's more a question of sort of the overall shared costs and what does this do to that?
1: Right? Has anybody brought that up in in North Cowichan, The idea that like uh, getting rid of the RCMP there?
2: It comes up periodically. I. Um, Knowing what I know about our contract and even looking at the Surrey situation, I think at the end of the day If you if you lose the RCMP and you go with the municipal service You're going to get less service and it's going to cost you more money I, It's for better or worse. I, I do believe it's the best delivery system the most efficient delivery system that's available to us
1: So what happens now then with your concerns with this letter that you've written? What are the next steps?
2: well all I'm asking is that the Attorney General and particularly Mr. Opal review these concerns as part of the process of of looking at, um, you know, Surrey's departure. And hopefully at the end of the day, they'll crunch some numbers and come out at the back end and say either, you know, there's no impact or there's minimal impact or, wow, there's a big impact on these small communities. And somehow we need to factor that in into the equation of how policing is delivered.
1: All right, Mayor Sebring, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That is Al Sebring, the mayor of North Cowichan. You know, I've always been a huge fan of Whitney Houston. Unfortunately, I never did get the chance to see her in concert, sort of back when Whitney Houston was in her prime. I mean, I saw Janet Jackson. I saw NXS. I saw David Bowie, Duran Duran, like, lot of great shows. Lana Ritchie, twice, great show. But I never did see Whitney Houston. Well, she's been gone now for seven years, but apparently if I still want to see Whitney Houston my chance is coming up next year because she's returning to the stage in a hologram tour. And when we heard this story yesterday first, we had this very intense debate amongst the people who work here about whether or not you would go to a hologram concert and if there were one, like which one would you actually pay money for? So we had to bring in our CKNW contributor, Claire Allen, to talk more about this. Claire, would you go to a Whitney Houston hologram concert?
4: You know, I don't think so. And the reason why... I wouldn't go is because I actually saw that uh, Whitney Houston, or the documentary that's on Netflix right now about Whitney, and I just don't feel right about supporting a hologram tour, and that's something we'll get to later in this segment, sort of like the ethics behind the hologram tours that are are coming up or already out there. So Simi, you're right, Um, Whitney is back ish. Shocking. Yeah. So in partnership with the estate of Whitney Houston, base hologram has revealed the first rendering of the Whitney Houston hologram. Have you seen the picture Simi? I've seen the pictures, and I also just
1: read this Rolling Stone article that I was talking about that discussed the Frank Zappa hologram Mm -hmm. tour, which apparently did very well financially, Mm -hmm. Uh, although one of the people who actually paid money was like, I love it, I love it. The thing is, though, if you really saw Frank in concert, you'd know that he never played the same concert twice, and if you go to see this, it has to be exactly the same every single time.
4: I think I read the same thing that you read, and it said that, uh, yeah, like after 10 minutes, kind of the novelty wears off, and you realize you're just watching a holographic image, and that's... That, that spontaneity and unpredictability of an artist is like not there obviously because yeah. it's a but hologram
1: yet people are buying it yeah. the Roy Orbison tour was very successful that's
4: right and Buddy Holly they had a Roy Orbison Buddy Holly tour. which is going on tour this yeah, fall exactly yeah. so that that has been successful as well i saw some dates in um i believe i'm not sure exactly where they were but tickets were about 50 to 70 euro so you know, it's that's like it's, 100 bucks you know, 100 bucks, is pretty expensive for a hologram. You have to ask yourself if that's something you're willing to see. But going back to the Whitney Houston uh, tour that is kicking off in January of 2020, they released the image. It's Whitney. She's in a pair of blue jeans, a gold leather jacket. Looks great. I mean, Whitney was beautiful. So it looks exactly like Whitney. And they've also revealed the first round of dates for the upcoming An Evening with Whitney, the hologram tour. So it's about a 26 Date stretch starting off in Mexico, ending in Belarus. No North American um, uh, dates have been announced yet because they're, I guess, they're waiting to see how well this does overseas right. before they bring it to North America. Where Whitney, I mean, she was beloved around the world, but very beloved in North America.
1: Right. Whereas mm-hmm. I noticed that with some of these hologram tours, they seem to have more success like overseas.
4: Yeah. I was wondering why that is because I, I, I would imagine and you, you
1: saw that too, right? Like,
4: but but why i mean i would assume I fans know. are fans no matter where where they are in the world fan you know you could be in pakistan and love an artist and be in vancouver and love the same artist so i don't understand I don't why know. one uh, audience would be more want to see a hologram versus another, but um, so you know this Whitney Houston inspired hologram. Good is this,
1: yeah, I, well, that's the question. How does, like does it look like you sitting right here in front of me? Is well, it like the hologram what, deck from Star Trek Next Generation? You. Okay, <laughs> Go ahead.
4: let me tell you how this works, Simi. So. I am not uh, an expert in this, but I'll try to break it down. So the hologram looks so lifelike because of the angle of the light and the reflective material that's used. The re- material is called mylar, and that's what creates the holographic effect. So the mylar like screen... that shiny stuff? Mylar, uh, like, the, yeah. yeah. Well, okay. apparently the screen is semi-transparent, so the mylar reflects the images, the image where the light falls upon it. But where the light does not fall upon it, that's where the the audience can see through it so that sort of gives someone the the effect it gives you it gives the effect of someone being on right stage there. and that there's no screen at all but what's really interesting is that these are It's an a image that comes out of, pro, of a projector. That's what, how the hologram is created. So the projector receives a video signal and then projects it down from the ceiling. The image then hits a bounce screen on the floor, which then reflects the light back up into the mylar, which then reflects that image 45 degrees into the audience. So the audience sees someone that's standing up. Not And so it's like this weird... So the audience sees this kind of equation.
1: 3D image in front of them, but in even though it's them. light bouncing off of multiple areas. Wh- which is
4: pretty cool. But then I was wondering, so if Whitney's going to be moving around the stage, right? She's not going to be one... Apparently they can do that, yeah. yeah they can a, move you all over. You
1: I can, like walk, you can actually interact. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're faking it, obviously. They're acting. But they're interacting with the other musicians and that's, all that kind of stuff. It's
4: cool. I think it's a really cool in a technological advancement. I'm like, wow, this is so awesome. But as a fan, pay a ticket buyer, not so awesome for me. I don't know oh, if I are like you sure? it. Sure. Some people are very key. The Roy Orbison Buddy Holly tour
1: is got a lot of dates in the United States. They're going to like Denver, Tucson, those kind And the, the most expensive ticket I just looked up for their Denver show is eighty dollars. Eh, that's pretty expensive. And that's literally like the second row. So if you could sit in the second row for eighty bucks and see Buddy Holly and Roy Orbison, is that worth it? Well, what's
4: the second row ticket for someone that's the equivalent to Roy Orbison? Who would that be? Uh, I get, well, I'm, I'm even thinking like it was Whitney Houston. If you could yeah, sit in the second row and see a, Whitney Houston play. If she were with us still, you'd probably be shelling out hundreds of dollars. So 80 bucks, maybe, maybe that's fair. But to me, um, so this this hologram tour with Whitney has been kind of controversial, right? Because people don't know if this is something that Whitney would have wanted. You know, is it exploitative? What will the quality of the show be? There's a lot of questions about the estate. So how this would work is that base hologram would license Whitney's image from the estate. The estate, this is a way for the estates to make a lot of money. So if an artist met an untimely death, You know, this is a way for their estate to really cash in aside from doing like, you know, greatest hits albums or whatever. You know, those traditional avenues that estates would make money, unreleased tracks, whatever. This is a new way for those estates to make money. But people question who's behind the estate and would the artist have really wanted this? So you're
1: telling me now that the the artists now have to put probably in their will, don't don't ever turn me into a hologram and put me on tour. That's what they're going to have to do.
4: I think you're probably right, Simi. I mean, like. A lot of people question about how, you know, how Prince's estate is handling everything. Prince would not everything.
1: want this. He would not want
4: this. Right. And some people say he probably wouldn't want his unreleased tracks no. to, to come out and be sold. He very of protective his of his, his, art, yeah, his work. So I imagine that, yes, this is something that some artists will have to think about. Like, do I want my image being trekked around the world after I die? And I hear, I haven't watched Black Mirror, but I hear there was a, a, um, a show where Miley Cyrus played... Uh, an artist um, who suffered a drug overdose and was in a coma right. in her hospital bed and her management put her hologram on tour while she was in a coma and so that's kind of a question that we have to ask ourselves like is this what the artist really wanted do we even care do we just want another night with Whitney I don't know but here's something that's interesting Simi okay Base Hologram is actually working on a hologram tour of Amy Winehouse now what do you think about that
1: um, oh, that is such a tough one. Like, is
4: her family saying yes to this? Would be her family because that's usually who's in charge of the estate. very uncomfortable.
1: I mean, you're right. I think for me, the, the discomfort comes from who is profiting off of this and would the artist actually be okay with this? Right, because... Because Orbison,
4: War- Buddy Holly, could never have imagined... Anything no, like you're this, right, exactly. Ever. But also, the way I look at it is that if you watch the Whitney documentary that's available on Netflix right now, or if you know about Amy Winehouse before they died, they really had a, they struggled a lot with the level of their fame and the expectations put upon a superstar at their level. So, I would feel uncomfortable knowing that they had those struggles, and now that the estate is capitalizing on their image, would they have wanted this? So, I I, I struggle with that, but. Who knows, maybe when an evening with Whitney Houston, the hologram tour comes to Vancouver, maybe it'll sell out. I'm so curious to see what kind of venues these will be in, what the capacity will be, and what, if, the, what can, the appetite of the fans are. Can
1: you foresee any, any artist in a hologram form at a concert that you would pay money to go and see? Yes. Any artist, Claire, which one? Only one.
4: one. And you and I talked about this because you and I are headed to Las Vegas to see the Eagles. Yes, we are.
1: <laughs> We're going to go see the Eagles, not next weekend, but the weekend after. We're very excited. But very of excited. course, Glenn Frey passed away. And I'm very
4: sad because I never, I gave up my one opportunity to see the Eagles so when Glenn Frey was alive. Uh, so, 1994,
1: hell freezes over tour. They came to town. The lineup at Ticketmaster was too long. And I said,
4: eh, we'll see the next, next time. I'll catch yeah. next time. I gave my tickets to my mom and regret that That deeply. was a mistake. Yeah. A mistake. <laughs> <laughs> and so... And now I'm thinking this might be an interesting way to incorporate a hologram into a show. I would be okay with seeing the Eagles featuring Glenn Frey hologram, but I'm not. Because the
1: rest of the Eagles are there. Don Henley is there. Exactly. Right. Because right now they've got his son, Deacon Deacon Frey, taking his spot. Vince Gill is singing some of his Mm -hmm. songs. But if you could replace that with a Glenn Frey hologram, but like Don Henley and the other Eagles yeah, are still there, still there, that you would pay money for. Yeah,
4: because it is, as you're right, Glenn, as you pointed out, Glenn Frey is not this, the singular front man. No. So there, there would be another, there would be a other whole Other songs show. that are
1: held by, sung by other members of the Eagles, right? Yeah, so.
4: so I like that idea. I don't think I would be paying to go see Whitney Houston or if they Elvis? did. Uh, no, I'll leave what about No, I'll leave it to my dad. <laughs> what about <laughs> no. if
1: Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr went on tour, but they had a hologram of John Lennon and George Harrison with Would you pay to see that?
4: I just feel that's a little... I feel it's weird. I feel like it is exploitative in a way. First of all, I don't think Yoko Ono would ever allow that to happen. For one. But Uh, you you know what? That's a lot of money, though. That's a huge cash opportunity. So maybe they'll change their tune. Because I also wonder, um, you know, as we get... Like for Elvis, an example. I went to Graceland and I got to see, you know, his home, his planes, his cars, etc., but um, I grew up with someone in my family, my dad, who loves Elvis. And as we get farther and farther away, as new generations come along, those revenue streams for those artists will dry, dry up, up as people pass and you know, away. And- Lisa Marie needs the money. Exactly. So I'm wondering, will this be a new way to get people to, you know, to fall in love with the king again? A hologram tour.
1: So you can't think of any individual artist that you would pay money for to see the hologram version in concert.
4: I have a hard time paying for live musicians just because of how expensive it's become. So I don't think I'd be shelling out this any is the bucks. It's cheaper version. See, no, it's still not cheap enough. Uh, I don't think I'd be shelling out any money to see the hologram of Whitney Houston.
1: I wonder, though, how other people would feel about that. So a question to you is this. Would you pay money to see a hologram of a famous musician or band in concert? And if you would, which one would it be? Elvis, I mean, that's a, that's all an obvious one, right? Like, Elvis, what other big musicians have passed away? Like, would you go see Prince? Would you go see Whitney Houston's tour? James Brown, would you go see James oh, Brown? that's
4: a good one. I haven't even thought about that. Oh, see,
1: $30, Claire. $30 to go and see James Brown hologram concert.
4: No, still not for me. Because not the real thing. What's the, I don't For me, it's the what novelty. is? Yeah, but how is that different from watching one of James Brown's performance from when he was alive and in his prime?
1: Okay, well, he's not. That's what the difference is. I
4: know, but we're (laughs) pretending, aren't we? I guess.
1: That's our question. Would you do this? Would you pay money to go and see a hologram concert? Whitney Houston, whoever the case may be, Elvis, who would you pay money of a hologram to go and see in concert? Well, big news on the transportation front. We've talked about it forever. We've seen diagrams. Well, now we're getting some official word on how the new Broadway SkyTrain line is going to look. The locations of the six new stops have been finalized. And to talk more about this, we're joined now by Kenneth Chan, who's the Western Canada editor for the urbanized section of Daily Hive Online. Kenneth, thanks so much for joining us.
5: Thanks, Simi. It's good to be on. Well,
1: it's good to talk about this. I know there's a lot of interest in this particular extension of the line. So let's run through some of the stops. First of all, any surprises for you when you looked at this?
5: Um, well, we've known the general locations for the stations for quite some time now, but I think there are two areas areas of concern to zero in on. First, there's the Broadway City Hall station. So apparently, they're going to use the existing Cairn Line station entrance, which might be problematic down the road considering it is going to be a major hub for SkyTrain between the Cairn Line and the New Memory Line. So, using that same station entrance, which is well, it can be quite congested. Yeah. yeah ready, right? So. Oh,
1: I was there on Saturday afternoon uh, because I had to visit the Halloween Spirit Store, uh, which is right next door to where that is, and it is incredibly <laughs> crowded. So, yeah, they're going. That's going to be even busier now.
5: Yeah. So there's only one entrance for that station, and another pinch point could be our beauty station at the western end of the extension. We have hordes of students transferring between the B line and the station so what is that going to entrance going to look like down the road in let's say about years if we don't do the extension CBC um and I think in general hopefully we do learn from our mistakes from the cannon line since
1: Build it. Yeah
5: you Know, got built it right first time, right? <laughs>
1: Build it big enough the first time, right? Because we know yeah. the Canada line was like max uh, soon yeah. after it got built. Let's talk about that Arbutus station though for a second. I was looking at the map and it shows that it that the station will be on the northeast corner of the intersection of Arbutus and Broadway. Does that seem like the right placement to you?
5: Um, so from what I understand, there is a bus loop. Uh, north of that station entrance. It's where they have a large open area that you can use to really use as an interim bus loop, I guess, until they get the installation going. Um, but it does seem right considering that is where students will be transferring off it's be of the busy. station into the bus loop, right? So That's already so since, I mean, a busy yeah. intersection.
1: It's already Absolutely. really busy, yeah. Very, very. Right. Okay. So do you think, like, right away, you feel, Kenneth, obviously, that this is going to be a very heavily used line?
5: Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Um, considering that, well, students, of course, are one of the biggest groups for the extension, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously, we're going to see lots of people transferring to the carrying line and then getting off at Broadway City Hall to use the extension. So let's say I'm using the 41st B line. I'll get, off at, I'll get on at Booker Station, and then I'll get off at um, the Broadway Street Hall on the Canine Line, and then I'll transfer to the Millennium Line extension to Arbutus. So I think we're going to see a lot of spoke funneling into the Broadway extension once it, is, once it gets going.
1: Right. It's going to be very busy. Like, So let's talk about some of the other stations. For instance, uh, like the Oak Street station is not right at Broadway and Oak, is it?
5: Uh No, it's not. Um, so I believe they have positioned it in a way that makes it more convenient for access to the hospital. So it's at Lower Street. So you don't have to cross the uh, Broadway. You can just really just hop of the station and then just walk one block south to the hospital. So that's actually a big plus, I think.
1: Yeah, that's going to be very busy too when you consider that's kind of the area with all the the health kind of stuff. You've got the hospitals there, you've got BC Cancer Agencies there. It's going to be a very busy station.
5: For sure, absolutely.
1: Can you think of another one on that line then, the six of them, other than the Canby Broadway, which you think is going to be very busy?
5: Um, those are, well, Canby and Broadway and up Um Danville could also see some... Um, more traffic if they do increase the buses there, considering, yeah. you know, you, we do have north-south buses on Granville Street, and depending on how they align um, you know, the bus routes after the extension opens, we could see more traffic there, right. for sure.
1: So this is going to start at the VCC Clark Station. So really, it's an extension of the Millennium Line. So you, can you can you just stay on the Millennium Line and just keep going?
5: Yes, So you can actually start from Arbutus Station and then just keep going all the way to Coquitlam in one train ride. You don't have to switch trains at all. You can just go on one train ride from Arbutus to Coquitlam. That's
1: kind of amazing,
5: isn't it? It really is. It's a game changer.
1: I think so, too. Like, when I think about this, like, so you're talking about students all the way out east as well. And especially if you combine them with students who are coming in, um, you know, from the expo line. They have the opportunity to go to SFU and make that smoother, or they can go to UBC that is smoother. It really is uh, like opens up a lot more possibilities.
5: It really does. Um, people do value speed, and of course, with Skytrain, how it's automated, we do have a very high frequency of service. So when you add those two up, speed and frequency, you do see a lot more ridership compared to other systems.
1: All right, so when is all this supposed to be done, Kenneth?
5: Um, So construction will start in late 2020, and it should be running by 2025. Do
1: you think we're going to also hear an announcement on whether or not this is going to go all the way to UBC? (laughs)
5: Um, It's hard to say, really. Um, I do think the Mayor's Council is really trying to get that happening over the next few weeks. It's been being promised. Um, it's really hard to say, but I do think that there is a lot of uh, campaigning going behind the scenes to get that happen.
1: Yeah, I think so too. Well, we'll have to talk to you again then if we get that announcement. Kenneth, thank you so much for joining us.
5: <laughs> no worries. Thanks.
1: That's Kenneth Chan, the Western Canada editor for the urbanized section of Daily Hive, talking about the six official finalized locations for the new Broadway subway station.
6: There was no other cause, uh, no infectious cause, no hint of any neoplasm cancer, uh, no other immune-related issues. The only issue that was identified was that the individual vaped e-cigarettes.
1: That was Dr. Christopher Mackey. He is the medical health officer of the Middlesex London Health Unit in Ontario. Sounds like we're getting a Canadian first here, a youth being diagnosed with a severe respiratory illness related to vaping. And we've been hearing hundreds of such cases from the United States. They've got seven reported deaths as well. Canadian officials the last couple of weeks have been warning that this is, we're likely to get an official case very soon now that they have a category to put these cases into and today, that was confirmed. To talk more about this latest development, let's talk to Andrew Graham, who's a global news reporter in London, Ontario. And Andrew, thanks for joining us.
6: Thank you for having me. Good afternoon.
1: So how old is this case that we know of? How old is the person involved here?
6: Now, there's not too many details they're releasing about the case. They haven't told us when this happened. They haven't told us the age of the person or even the gender of the person. All they've told us is that this was a, a teenage youth in high school who used vaping products on a daily basis in that they were diagnosed with this severe pulmonary illness.
1: Do they describe the symptoms at all?
6: Uh, No description of symptoms. Again, they're very, very short on description. They wouldn't even name the the product that was used, the brand of the product. And a lot of that stems from just a lack of confirmation because in the statement itself they also stated they can't conclusively say this was directly linked to vaping but there were no other no other identifiable causes so no infections no hint of any neoplasm cancer which is another cause or no other immune related issues so it, it seems like by you know by order of reduction vaping would be the uh, the, the only cause here
1: Right. And is that, do you think, why it has taken so long as well? Because it seems like for health authorities, there was a whole bunch of other things it could have been, and now they're realizing, maybe we have a similarity here. Like, maybe this is what we're dealing with.
6: I do think that is what it is. And you'll notice today also, um, here in Ontario, our Deputy Premier and Health Minister also issued a statement that she's enacted or a minister's order to have uh, health health officials in Ontario release more information, more reporting on vaping. So they want to be more aggressive in tracking the causes, tracking the illnesses. So it could be a matter of they just weren't tracking it hard enough before. They weren't as aggressive with the tracking. And now things have changed since then.
1: Right. Has there been any talk in Ontario, as there has been in BC, of taking a look at the rules and regulations around vaping?
6: That's the thing. It's still so early. And um, Dr. Chris Mackey, who's a medical officer of health, uh, you heard in that clip you played, mm-hmm. uh, when he was asked about banning uh, banning vaping in Ontario, again, still so much red tape to cut through in that sense. So I mm-hmm. don't know where exactly we'll get there in the coming weeks. It may be a matter of years. It's hard to say.
1: Has the health minister in Ontario had anything to say about this?
6: Um, Again, the health minister did mention that she's becoming increasingly concerned about the prevalence and possible health consequences of vaping. Those are her words, um, in particular, as they affect our youth in Ontario. Um, So she has stated she wants to learn more, wants more reporting done. She's increasingly concerned. But Again, still too early to say where that will actually lead us in terms of regulations, rules, or even a possible ban, right. it's still hard to say.
1: So did the health officials mention at all like maybe what the next steps are? Where do they go from here?
6: Um again, so from their from, from their point of view, their their next step is just to gather more information, gather right. more stats, more data. Um, again, still such an early, an early phase. And a big thing to remember, too, is that even for them, I mean, they couldn't conclusively say this was directly related to vaping. And I do think that's a, a matter of just not having the right data, not having the right statistics available. So it Let's really see. is such a, an early stage at the moment. Yeah. Right,
1: early. All right, Andrew, thank you so much for your time.
6: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I
1: appreciate that. That's Andrew Graham, global news reporter in London, Ontario. In the meantime, one of the other stories that you're going to be hearing a lot about in the news today has to do with the closing arguments on the defence side of things in the trial of Andrew Barry. It is the second day of those closing arguments and it has been a fascinating case to follow along on. Our reporter Aaron Eubels was in court for this and joins us now with more. Aaron, thanks for being here. Hi, Simi, thank you. Okay, so let's refresh people's memory on this. Who is Andrew Berry? What is this trial all about?
7: so andrew berry uh if you do remember he is the gentleman uh in oak bay on vancouver island there um his two daughters aubrey and chloe they were both found murdered inside his apartment on christmas day back in 2017 a horrific case here he was charged with uh with with in their murders um and so right now that's sort of what the case is today we've got the closing arguments going on it's the second day for defense um, and they are essentially trying to discredit a lot of the uh, the witnesses, um, and and asking the jury not to accept certain uh, certain witnesses' evidence. More importantly, um, the first the officer that was on scene. Um, that walked in to find that. Now, uh, that was Constable Ulanowski. He was the first on scene in Barry's apartment Christmas Day. Um, defense is saying that he's an important important witness rather, uh, because he was visibly traumatized. He asked for some backup uh, when he did walk in t- into the apartment and saw Barry in the bathtub. Now, Barry had um, uh, stab wounds as well uh, in that scene, so he asked an officer um, whether if uh, anybody had came and went during the time when that officer had walked into the apartment and left um right now uh he had let me back up here so he, had, he had, Go uh, ahead, walked yeah. into that apartment. He left the apartment unguarded for about five to ten minutes. So now ah. defense is saying that, uh, well, could somebody have came and went in that time, in those five minutes that you left it unguarded? And he he didn't have an answer for him. So essentially, as trying to drive a wedge into these witnesses, defense tells the jury that the officers who attended the scene, they're they're shaping the evidence, uh, and that the jury shouldn't accept the evidence because it's not common sense uh, to walk into a scene and leave it unguarded at that time. So all the while, I'm sitting there uh, in the courtroom, very sitting still he's taking notes as his lawyer is uh, arguing this case
1: right now, the lawyer the defense in this case it seems to me has been very aggressive in challenging the prosecution's yeah. version of events and i think that is is part of what has made this trial so interesting to follow along on like there was that whole thing that andrew barry is alleging that he owed money to loan sharks and that might have played a role in all mm-hmm. of this
7: yeah exactly and that's uh, i think we heard that a couple weeks ago uh when they were when they were going over that so uh that whole story essentially that is his defense he's saying that he owed a large amount of money I thought. I can't remember the exact amount. I know it was tens of thousands of dollars that he apparently owed to these loan sharks. Um, and so his defense in this case is that uh, they could quite possibly be responsible uh, for the murders of right. his two daughters.
1: And you talked about how he went, they tried to kind of work on the credibility of some of the witnesses in this case. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess that also included their, the RCMP blood spatter expert?
7: yes and if i remember correctly um the blood spatter experts there was just take a look here so um they had mentioned that there was actually no dna of the daughters found on Barry's clothes which i found was very interesting uh, because they have charged him in their murder. Right. Um, that's what we heard yesterday in the closing arguments. So that was quite an interesting thing. And but previously they had all, also said that there was um, there was no evidence of a third person even being in that apartment. So that's another interesting thing here in this case when he's saying that. Well, it was quite possibly a loan shark that killed my daughters.
1: Um,
7: But on top of that, there's no evidence that there was, uh, sorry, a fourth person, not a third person, fourth person in that apartment. Right.
1: So how much longer is this expected to go on for, Erin?
7: So we've got the defense uh, doing their case. So this would be the second day. We're expected to hear from Crown at some point tomorrow. We're hoping um, this should be wrapping up, hopefully by Friday, but we'll have to keep an eye on that.
1: All right, we'll see about that. I'm sure we'll be talking to you again. Aaron. thank
7: mm-hmm. you. You bet. Thank
1: that's, you. That's Aaron Newbell's global news reporter who's been covering the second day of closing arguments. Uh, this is from the defense side of things in the trial of Andrew Barry. Here's a question for you as part of our Where We Live series. When was the last time you visited your neighborhood legion? Boy, it seems to me like back in the 90s, this was a very big deal. Do they still have the mitra? draw? You know, when you used to go to the the Legion, and on Fridays they would have the meat draw. That was always a big deal. Well, our CKNW contributor Claire Allen takes us on a tour of a Legion that is really, I would say, hidden amongst the homes in the beachside community of Kitsilano. She visited the Billy Bishop Legion.
4: When I say Kitsilano, what do you think about? Is it the beach? the birthplace of Lululemon
1: Lulu in the news after posting strong fourth quarter results revenue of $1.17 billion.
4: or dozens of trendy restaurants and boutiques Well, all of those are true But did you know that Kitsilano is home to a 70-year-old legion? The Billy Bishop legion is a hidden gem in the neighborhood Emphasis on the word hidden From the outside, the Billy Bishop legion looks just like any other house but once you're inside, it's like you've gone back in time. The Legion's interior is decorated like a British pub, the sort that you would imagine would have been frequented by airmen during World War II. Lisa McQuillan is the president of the Billy Bishop Legion, and she showed me around the historic venue.
0: This Legion was actually started up, it started first as an air, the Air Force Foundation. So it was started by Air Force guys, and um, they wanted it to be very similar to an English pub. So as an Air Force, and then when they went to get the charter for the Legion, um, decided it should be Billy Bishop. Of course, is, Billy Bishop is one of the best known World War One ace pilots, but he was also instrumental in World War Two with some of the training of, of a lot of different um, fighter pilots. He's an iconic figure, so it just seemed appropriate that the. the the Air Force Legion, so to speak, would be named after him.
4: One of the most valued features of the Billy Bishop Legion is that it's actually designated as a wartime museum. Almost everything in the Legion has a historical significance, including the wood-burning fireplace. Uh, even things like
0: the, the grate in the, um, for the fireplace, that's components of, of airplane bits.
4: Sitting above the fireplace is a portrait of Air Marshal William Bishop, and along the wooden beams are hundreds of emblems from different regiments all over the world.
0: They're either gifted to us or they're provided to us as a, a sign of respect or in, in appreciation for some support that we've provided them. So one of our newest ones is, is the Seaforth Highlanders. And it's really lovely. To, we'll watch people walk around and go, that was my grandfather's regiment. or And they'll take pictures.
4: The Billy Bishop offers a variety of events every week that are available for everyone to enjoy. From the Friday night dinners to the Sunday night meat draws, there's always something to do at the Legion. And you don't have to be a veteran in order to partake. You simply have to come down and sign up to become a member.
0: Come on in. We'll give you a form yeah. and you fill it in and you give us $65 for a year. But that's that's what it takes to become a member. There's an oath that you sign on the back which really just identifies that you support the mission of the Legion and that you'll support the Poppy campaign every year.
4: McQuillan is hoping that more people sign up to become a member because for the past few years, the Billy Bishop Legion has been struggling to pay its ever-increasing property taxes. In the past, City of Vancouver officials have cited the charter saying that it's not possible to grant legions a property tax exemption. McQuillan is now speaking with new Mayor Kennedy Stewart about the issue and is hoping that he will have a change of heart. She says that if legions shut down, valuable stories will be lost.
0: Historically, we've lost so much in the city of Vancouver historically with, with the way the city has chosen to redevelop. and When you lose the buildings, you also lose some of those memories and some of those stories. We here can continue to tell a really important story. A story of Vancouver and a story of key members of Vancouver, our our serving men and women, our first-line responders. So those are the stories we tell.
4: To learn more about the Billy Bishop Legion, visit billybishoplegion.org For the Where We Live series on AM 980 CKNW I'm Claire Allen
1: Well, you're going to have to make sure that you tune into the Simi Sarah Show tomorrow because 10.30 tomorrow morning is when the Auditor General of BC, Carol Bellringer, will release her latest report into the spending scandal at the BC Legislature. So what can we expect from this? Any hints of what's to come? Well, I'm joined now by Richard Zussman, our online reporter for Global News at the Legislature. Hi, Richard. Hi, Simi. All right. So any scuttlebutt from the hallways there at the Legislature about what's
8: going to happen? I expect that this won't be as explosive as some may have believed in the past. You will remember, I think everyone listening will remember when Speaker Daryl Plekka said that he believes that after a forensic audit is done of the sergeant at arms and clerk's office, you will puke in disgust over it. And if not, he will resign Well, tomorrow's the day, you know, so much has unfolded throughout this scandal. We've had reports after reports. We've had early retirements. We've had expert reports done by Beverly McLaughlin. We've had uh, trips across the country by the chief of staff to the speaker, Alan Mullen. And now finally the day has come where you need your barf bag out there simmy and we'll have to see if this audit actually produces any vomit
1: i don't i'm just gonna say richard that i don't think ever in the history of our show have the words barf bag been used so no good not cool. even back then no this is, uh, this is the first i think So i have
8: my speaker uh Signify the uh, with the signature of the speaker right on the barf bag, and we'll see what the produce tomorrow on the report. I I expect you know this is the auditor general was tasked by the legislative assembly management committee to look into the expenses at the sergeant arms office, the speaker's own office, and the clerk's office.
1: And just in case people think you're exaggerating, though, Richard, we actually have the clip from back in (laughs) December. Have a listen.
8: If the outcome of those audits did not Outraged the public did not outrage taxpayers did not make them throw up i will resign as speaker
1: see so i rest <laughs> my case you still are the only person to use the words barf bag
8: Yes, yeah, so be. I want to make sure that if this is going to happen in British Columbia tomorrow, that it's at least done in an orderly way. Okay, Simi, I don't Absolutely. think people need things it. all over their office, right? But I don't think it's going to come to that tomorrow. A lot has been done since the Speaker made those comments. Uh, we have a better understanding now of the misspending that was done out of the clerk's office. We have a Sergeant at Arms who's still on paid administrative leave. Uh, he's been cleared by uh, the former clerk of the Supreme Court of Canada, Beverly McLaughlin, uh, there's another investigation underway now under the Police Act, looking into Gary Lenz. But he is still optimistic that his name will be cleared and he will be allowed to return to work. All of this being said, um, we will are very interested, no doubt, in an understanding of you know where the misspending mm-hmm. happened. How did it happen? And what sort of recommendations the Auditor General will suggest tomorrow in terms of moving forward? You know, A lot has been made about how do we clean up this mess? How do we restore public confidence in the legislature? We will see some recommendations tomorrow that will uh, start us down the path in terms of better financial accountability so the public can understand how uh, publicly funded officials in this province uh, spend our taxpayer money. So will this
1: report then take a look at what the expense situation has been like and will it make any recommendations? Is it going to essentially pass judgment on some of those expenses? Yeah, so
8: that's a really good question, Simi, because I'm curious about how far it will go in terms of pointing fingers at individuals and uh, finding fault. I don't expect that it will. I think it will likely show some... Discrepancies, potentially some areas where the rules weren't as clear as they could have been, and there was some misspending. Like we're already pretty well aware of some misspending around this big retirement payout that was handed over to Craig James as the clerk. We're well aware of the misspending associated with some clothing, some luggage watches as well as the wood splitter like i think these things now are pretty clear that they happened i think what we need to have a better understanding of from the auditor general is you know the day-to-day operations of the clerk and the sergeant arms in the speaker's office and are there enough checks and balances in place to ensure that as those jobs continue, that money, money is properly spent and most mm-hmm. importantly, money is properly accounted for.
1: So do you think that we'll see some changes? Will this report kind of change the structure of how all that is looked after at the legislature?
8: Structure is a funny word, Simi. Because oh, is it? We know that uh, one of the things that Alan Mullen was looking at on the road trip that he went on that I mentioned throughout the summer is the structure of the Sergeant at Arms office and whether, you know, that... Office should be responsible for policing as well as security of the building. I wonder how quickly we may see changes or proposed changes around structure, but I think we're going to have to wait a little bit longer to actually see the whole suite of changes in terms of public accounting, uh, ensuring that, you know, everything's online and available to the public to understand where this money is being spent. But, you know, there's an appetite here for substantial change in terms of restoring trust in this institution. I just wonder if this report will be the one that provides the blueprint for that. I don't expect it will, but I do think that there will be some recommendations there that will at least lead to some better um, measures right. for people to have more accountability here for how the money is spent.
1: Has there been a lot of change in this regard? It seems like this it's been very quiet on this yeah, front.
8: It has been very, yeah. very quiet. And the Legislative Assembly Management Committee uh, met in July. They plan on meeting again in October. You know, I think this is one of those issues, Simi, where the politicians just want it to go away. Uh, yeah. There are sort of concerns around, you know, what has been said by the Speaker and from Alan Mullen himself, the Chief of Staff to the Speaker. I think for the politicians, this is a really tricky one. I think for the Speaker, this is his legacy piece, right? Mm-hmm. He wants to see some substantive changes being done here, and he wants people to be held accountable. And after Beverly McLaughlin found... Uh, Gary Lenz to have done nothing illegal in her eyes, uh, the Speaker was, was mad about that. And I think there was some um, solace in the fact that Craig James retired uh, and has moved on from this place. Right. But there is a real sense from the Speaker's office that they want people to be held accountable. We'll see how far we get with the uh, the audit tomorrow. But I think there's still those two ongoing investigations. The RCMP investigation is still open. Right. Uh, the police investigation, uh, the internal police investigation under the Police Act is still open. So we'll have to wait and see what's found there. But I think there is an optimism from the Sergeant at Arms, Gary Lenz, who's on leave with pay, as I mentioned, that he still believes that he will be fully cleared in all of this.
1: Well, well, well. I guess we'll be talking to you tomorrow. Richard, thank you. Can't wait. Thanks yeah, me neither. That's Richard Dustman, our Global BC Legislature reporter.